All right, so uh, we're starting our study of, uh, we're not going to, so I'm not going to walk through these books like um, in, in order. Uh, we're just going to spend several weeks in this period of time uh, leading into uh, the fast. And so really at, my sights are set on the fast, which is in four or five weeks, four, let's see, no, less than that now, about four weeks. For uh, whatever, do the math. Somebody tell me when you figure it out. I have just one question. Yes. Or after or during Thanksgiving? <laughs> it's the week before. Yes. Clean, clean the system out and then hit the holidays. Um, no, uh, so it's the week before Thanksgiving, and that was because, uh, you know, once you hit the holiday season everything's just kind of a blur and we wanted to really get everyone on board as much as possible for that period yeah four weeks from tonight tonight. yeah so we're just going to hang out in this post-exile period for those four weeks i'm not necessarily going to walk through ezra tonight although I'll, i'll mostly focus on ezra but it's important i think that we take all of the books during this period together because if you just read ezra it'd be a little confusing you know it What's the point? You know, what, what are we supposed to learn here? I mean, there are some passages that are a little bit moving, but then other moments that are like, huh? Why? You know, what, what's that all about? Like, what, is, what is the um, massive divorcing of foreign wives all about? That's, that's, a, that's a strange move. Uh, what's going on here? And so um, it's, we're going to, all that to say, we're going to be in this period of time just over the next four weeks. And so where, where my heart is, um, you know, as I've been reading, there are a lot of parallels between, I think, our current situation, our current state as, the, as a church in Lexington, Kentucky in 2021. There are a lot of things we can learn from this period of time. And uh, hopefully the Lord will really reveal those to us. Um, but one of the big things that's on my heart, and one of the big things I think this time in Israel's history teaches us, is that um, it's God. God does the work. God establishes his people. God um, puts his law in people's hearts, and that's really what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, But they're coming back out of captivity, and the prophets have prophesied this time, right? Isaiah spoke of it. Jeremiah spoke of it, particularly Jeremiah. Daniel talked about it, and Daniel really realized, hey, we're, we're heading into this time. It's, it's coming up upon us. And so then the Cyrus, who Isaiah prophesied about many years back, he starts to do his thing, and, and the exiles are coming back. And um, in chapter 1 of Ezra, it's, it sounds like the Exodus, right? They're coming out of captivity, being sent out by the foreign king and being given riches as they do, right? This is the new Exodus, and so, but then they get into the land, and it's just kind of like disappointing. And that's one of the things I appreciate about the, if you watch the Bible Project video, he talks about how it's a series of like buildups with anticlimactic <laughs> endings. And the whole point is that, yes, they're back in the land, but there's something even greater that the prophets who prophesied that they were coming back and that they would uh, reestablish the kingdom, they were talking about something that was even much greater 
than people could even comprehend at that point, or even envision, all right? So this points us to God's faithfulness in, in working with his people, but it also points us forward to Jesus because none of this is conclusive and none of this is, is fulfilling. It's all a little, little even less than before, you know? Not, it's like two, one step forward and two steps back. <laughs> We're back in the land, but, well, it's a, it's a mess around here. And what are we going to do about it? How are we going to restore the former kingdom, right? We, we left off last week in the climax of the kingdom. David, Solomon, the temple, it was glorious. The nations were coming. The, the, the spirit, the presence of God was falling on the house of God. Remember the beautiful portions in Kings and echoed in Chronicles of Solomon's dedication of the temple. If people from foreign countries pray towards this house, Lord, hear them and bless them. Right? The, the fulfilling of the calling of the people of God to become a great nation through which all nations of the earth will be blessed. That really started to happen in Solomon's time. But unfortunately, idolatry uh, hijacked the whole project and drove it into the ground. And that's, where we, that's why we ended up in captivity. So um, I actually want to start in 2 Chronicles 36. Um, this actually leads us straight into the book of Ezra. And remember, the, book of, the books of Chronicles were written at a later time, probably around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah, which, by the way, are, are, uh, for a while, were just seen as one one narrative, Ezra and, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. So, Second Chronicles 36. Uh, we have the... So, King Josiah um, did a lot of good things. My second son is named after this king. Um, he found the word of God buried in the temple somewhere, brings it out, reads it, and everybody goes, whoa, we've really been missing it. And he makes some reforms. However... The king before Josiah, Manasseh, had sealed Judah's fate. God said, all right, we've reached the end. I have now decreed that you for sure will go into captivity. Captivity has been looming for a long time, but Manasseh was sort of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. So despite Josiah's reforms, Judah is on a uh, one-way ticket, one-way trip into exile. So Josiah is dead in ba- uh, is killed in battle, and um, at that point, Babylon and Egypt were at war, sort of at odds with each other over this strategic piece of land. You know, I mean, you know the geography. If uh, you know, if the the Jordan River is here, and and then Jerusalem is kind of here, then Babylon is off to the to the east, and Egypt is down to the west, and right in between there is a, is a really strategic part of land that's still fought over to this day. Um, Babylon was coming and trying to claim the land, and Egypt wanted to claim the land, which is, I mean, there's some symbolism there. Uh, which foreign king is, is going to rule over the people of God? Um, Egypt makes a move, but Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come in and make the decisive really the decisive move. And so after Josiah, his two sons, one of them is on the throne uh, and he's deposed. And then his brother is set in as sort of a puppet king of Babylon. So that's what's going on in chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. Jehoahaz, 
uh, was 23 years old when he began to reign. Um, king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king. I'm sorry. So Egypt put Egypt was there, but then Babylon comes and takes it from Egypt. So Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah. Uh, Josiah was killed in a battle with Egyptians. Pharaoh, uh, Necho. Um, but Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. So now Jehoiakim, who is Eliakim, uh, Egypt had changed his name from Eliakim to Jehoiakim. Um, he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. So there are several waves of exile. It didn't all happen at once. This is the first wave of the exile, where Nebuchadnezzar comes and he takes some in chains to Babylon. Uh, Daniel was likely in one of these early waves. He, as a young man, was taken, and this is in Daniel chapter 1, he, as a young man, was taken into Babylon, and, uh, you know, they, they took, they didn't just wipe everybody out. Babylon took people and, you know, recultured them in the ways of Babylon. They changed their names into Babylonian names. They taught them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And actually, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were their, that was their Babylonian names, um, they became very successful and very entrusted advisors to the king. Um, so, alongside this, Jeremiah had prophesied the captivity. All along, he had been warning the people. And he said, uh, it's not a little thing, it's a big thing. <laughs> and all the false prophets of Jeremiah's day were saying, no, God's going to come and deliver us. He's going to give us the victory. We know who God is. Don't listen to these doomsday people, uh, these exile guys. Um, they're trying to scare you. God, you know, God's on our side. And, and Jeremiah came and shut them up and said, no, it's actually not a, not a small thing. It's going to be actually 70 years. And you're going to be taken away. And in Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you. <laughs> one, of the, one of the most egregiously taken out of context verses in all of the Bible. Uh, his plan was 70 whole years of captivity, right? So I know the plans I have for you. Uh, you're going away for a long time. And still, though, when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. And so... Uh, Jeremiah says it's, it's not small, it's 70 years. And so the 70 years really start, you know, there's not an exact, there's a couple, uh, there's a couple ways to read that 70 years, um, what, what window at time, of time it covered. But if you look and you see from the first wave, so they, 587 is when Jerusalem actually is conquered and the walls are, are destroyed and everything's destroyed. But that's like the second or third wave of Babylonian exile. Okay? So if you start the clock like in the first wave, when these first exiles were taken up, then if you fast forward, it's not exactly 70 years. It might be 66 years or something. But if you fast forward to the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, it's right about 70 years. All right? So that, that's what's going on. Um, Jehoahaz, then Jehoiakim. And then there's two other puppet kings, Jehoiachin and then Zedekiah. And then after Zedekiah, uh, it has this kind of summary of the state of Israel. 
Um, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And Second Chronicles points out a lot, particularly Jeremiah. <laughs> Jeremiah told him it was going to happen. God sent Jeremiah, and they didn't listen to Jeremiah. Uh, picks it up in, in Ezra 1. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Cyrus made his proclamation. So Zedekiah says he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Now, this is a, at that point, a modern day example of the old problem in Genesis 6. It's, it's become beyond, uh, beyond help. Mankind's way was always evil. It was idolatrous. And the result of that was destruction, death, violence coming into the earth through these people's lives. So it was pollution. The priests have gone astray. They're worshiping idols. And the result is now there is pollution and abominations in the house of the Lord. So God has to do something. And just like he did, just like he has been doing all the way through, he sends them out. He casts them out of of the place that he had desired to dwell with them in. And here's this summary. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. People who think that the God of the Old Testament is, there's no compassion. I mean, years and years and years and years. All the means that were at God's disposal he used to try and win his people back. It says right here, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That's very bleak. So at that point, uh, the people go into exile for real. Verse 19, they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So Daniel's an interesting book that bridges the gap between then and now, kind of spans the 70 years. He's the 70 years prophet. And um, in Daniel, one of the things that happens is the Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire. That's when, when he has the writing on the wall. That's the Babylonian Empire is coming to an end. And then it says the kingdom went into the hands of the Medes and Persians. Uh, it says Darius the Mede, but that's not the same Darius that, that is king of 
Persia after Cyrus. It's a different Darius. I guess they like the name Darius. All right, so that's where we are. So Cyrus, king of Persia, says, you know, he acknowledges God. And this is one of those places in Scripture where you start to realize that, you know, here we have the history of God's chosen people. But God's a busy guy. (laughs) He deals with all the kings of the earth and has relationship with them. And it makes me think that, you know, anyone who's in a position of national power, I know God has dealt with them in a unique way. Uh, It's just really interesting to think about. Every time I think about even our president, God has dealt with them in a unique way. Um, Kings of the, all the kings of the nations, they're in the hand of the Lord. The hearts of the kings are in the Lord's hand. But God sovereignly raises up Cyrus to send the people of God back into the land. And like I said, it's very much an Exodus-sounding process. But they get there, they, they go, they get into the land. And um, in chapter 3, well, first of all, let me just give you Ezra. The, the outline of Ezra is pretty easy. Um, chapters 1 through 6 deal with this first, uh, first wave back into the land. Ezra comes along uh, a generation or two after, eh, probably, I forget exactly how many years. It's like maybe 50 or, 40 or 50 years after the events of the first part of the book. Um, the leader, the big leader here in the, in the initial efforts to, to reestablish the temple is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is actually in the genealogy of Christ, by the way. Um, Zerubbabel is in, I believe, Matthew's, well, both Matthew and Luke's genealogy. But Zerubbabel comes back. They, um, the first thing they do is they build the altar, uh, but they haven't been able to build the foundation of the temple yet. But they build the altar, they keep the Feast of Booths, and everything's going great. Um, Chapter 3, verse 10, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestment came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. This is just, this throws us back to 1 Chronicles 16, where David's establishing worship, in the household of God. And it's, it's really where the, the golden age kicks off. And it kicks off with a big worship service. And what's the big thing that they're singing at that worship service? For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. So they do this. They're like, get out the old songs. You know, we're going to sing them again in the land of the Lord. And here's the altar. And we're going we're gonna to build the temple. And the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, although many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And this, I think it's a beautiful, haunting picture of the tension between, yay, we're back, and this is nothing like what we had 
what we knew before, but also nothing like what we had hoped for. I mean, there was so much hope and glorious vision in the prophets that surely many a night in Babylon, <laughs> as by the waters of Babylon they sat down, sat down and wept, surely they consoled themselves so often with these glorious images from the prophets. And they get here in the... Man, this is, this is a long way from that. You're not, we're not even close to that. And then as soon as that happens, so there's not a big glorious, you know, when they set everything up and there's not a big moment where the glory of God comes and the presence of God is there. That's the only thing lacking. They're singing all the songs. They're getting the right guy. They're getting the right worship leaders. You know, they got them all together and they have them in. They, they, call, the, they call the meeting and the assembly and, and it's just not, it's not the same. It's like, yeah, that's the song, but man, it felt a lot different when we sang it before. And then immediately after this in chapter 4, it talks about the people who don't want this work to happen. They don't want the temple being rebuilt. It's the people that have been dwelling in the land during the time of the exile. So it's interesting to note, too, that they say these adversaries come up and they say, let us build with you. And they say, no, you're not welcome to build with us. That's the first thing. Um, The second thing is that then the people of the land discourage it. So first they say, hey, let us do it with you. And they say, no. Then they say, it says they discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid. And then they bribed counselors. You know, they, they hired lawyers. <laughs> That's what that means. They hired lawyers to try and legally stop them. Um, probably the... the uh, equivalent today would be like a lobbyist you know they they just poured all kinds of big money into lobbying against this thing then they bribed counselors against them and then you probably this confused this always confuses me and i gotta remind myself but when it starts talking about the adversaries it jumps way ahead in the future and he says hey while we're on the subject of the adversaries let me go ahead and tell you how this work has been opposed up until the writing of this book. All right, so he talks about the adversaries. Um, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which was the, the king after Cyrus. All right. Now, if you skip forward, and it helps me to put like a little parentheses from verse 6 all the way down to verse 23. Because that's sort of a fast-forwarding of all the ways in which this work has been opposed. Because then it talks about the reign of Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes. That's the king during Esther. Xerxes and Artaxerxes, who came after Xerxes. And that's when it talks about this. He says, and in fact, I've got a letter that was written during that time, and here's what it said. You know, he brings in some primary sources to illustrate his point. And then the king's answer. And so at the end of chapter 20, or verse 23, then in verse 40, uh, 24, it picks the story back up. The work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we're back in uh, that first round of opposition. 
Does that make sense? So it just jumps forward and then jumps back. So this is when, this is when the prophets come on the scene. Right? The prophets during this period are, are crucial. All the way from you know, the beginnings of the threat of exile, really beginning with Elijah and Elisha, and all the prophets that were sort of in that school of prophets and began to prophesy, and even these, these guys, they really are carrying the word of God. They're carrying the heart of God and revealing the heart of God because the kings aren't. So the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, books that we are uh, going to be studying alongside Ezra and Nehemiah, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Um, so it talks about Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and this is the same Jeshua. Just note this guy's name because he's mentioned in Zechariah. In Zechariah, he's called Joshua the high priest. Jeshua, it's the same name. Uh, it's actually, if you have King James, it's Jesus. It's the same name of Jesus, which is interesting to think about. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So God sends prophets to the work. And one of the things I want to look at as we go through is, all right, so they got there. We know what was going on. The, the house was being built, but it was kind of disappointing. What did God say? When the people were disappointed, especially the old men who knew the former glory, people were disappointed. There was opposition all over the place. And in fact, there's, the opposition got so great that we just had to stop. That's the situation that the prophets are speaking into. Haggai and Zechariah. Malachi is a little different. Malachi comes a little later. Um, so, it's kind of nice that chapter 6 ends with Darius. He goes back into the royal files and, and pulls out, oh, yeah, you know what? Um, Cyrus did say that, and so we're going to do it. And in fact, here, you know, here's the key to the treasury. Go ahead and take what you need and fulfill your work. So they do it. And so the temple is finished. They celebrate a Passover. Um, and they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it says the, the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. All right. Now we jump forward in time to Ezra. And Ezra's, Ezra's big push, uh, really one through six is about the building of the temple. Uh, Ezra's story, 7 through 10, is about the uh, reestablishment of Torah. Okay? So the book of Ezra really is about the temple and the Torah uh, and the people of God. The temple and the Torah. These are the things that God gave his people uh, as the primary ways for them to be his people. And you, we see what goes on with the work at the temple. It's not quite what we thought it would be. It's difficult. It's opposed, um, and it's not really resulting in the kind of glory that we thought. Ezra brings out the law, and again, mixed results. Some of it's good, but again, we get to this weird part at the end where the elders are saying, hey, we're reading the law, so what's the most important thing to do right now? Everybody who has a foreign wife, come and divorce her. 
You know, and that's debatable whether that was the best thing to do at that point. It's like, I'm glad that you're feeling conviction of sin. But it seems like, this is kind of my takeaway right now in the book of Ezra, that the people kind of know the will of God. They kind of have a, a vision, and even God's behind them. But it's still, it's still basically a human effort. All right? It's still basically limited by human limitations, this reestablishment. And I really think that this is one of the big things that God, one of the final lessons that the people of God needed to learn in preparation for Jesus coming. Okay? So they, they had known how bad idolatry is, right? The exile really taught them the destruction of idolatry and how disobedience from God, it does, even though he promised you the land, he also promised that if you're unfaithful, he'll send you out of the land, right? The exile taught them a lesson. But they're coming back into the land and there are still lessons to be learned. Okay, and the, really the prophets, I think, um, pull back the cover on some of those lessons. It's hard to figure out those lessons without reading the prophets. Okay. Um, all right, so that's, that's the book. That's what's going on. The people are going to reestablish the temple, reestablish the Torah. And in both cases, there are very mixed results. Okay. Um, we'll talk more about Nehemiah because that's sort of the same We'll talk more about Nehemiah next week. But it's sort of the same situation. Um, his heart, I mean, I think there's, there's so much sincerity in these books. I think Zerubbabel was very sincere. The people who were building the temple, those young men who saw it and were rejoicing, I think it was sincere, sincere joy. Right? I think their worship was very sincere. However, it was, it was not fully what it needed to be to reestablish the people of God. God was going to be doing something very different. Uh, not in their day or in their children's day, but about 400 years from then. Um, so there's two things that the prophet said during this time that I want to highlight. And we'll, we'll be kind of, as we go through these weeks, we'll be sort of bouncing back and forth between the story and the prophets. But two that I want to point out tonight. First one's in Haggai. Go to Haggai. Both of these guys, it says, uh, both Haggai and Zechariah, in the second year of Darius. Okay? In In the second year of Darius, this is when the work that had stopped started again. It had been opposed all the way through Cyrus's reign. So they came back under Cyrus, but then they got opposed and had to stop until uh, Darius II, or the second year of Darius. All right? So Haggai II, there's a lot of great stuff in Haggai, um, but Haggai II. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, 
and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Those were the two guys leading the, the work. The high priest and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And here's the first big point. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came up out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Okay, so that's the first big point. They were really focused on the, 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 the physical work of the temple. And God says, yeah, keep working. But you're not going to be happy with the work of your hands. In fact, I know, I see. I see how sad you are at the results, right? It says nothing in your eyes. And God says, don't worry about that. Work, for I am with you. Not work because you see tangible results. Not work because it's gaining steam and getting awesome, right? Work, for I am with you. And that was one thing that they needed to learn at that point. That God hasn't ever been. In fact, if you go read carefully God's covenant with David, God's never really been about having a nice house. (laughs) He has been about dwelling with his people, establishing them as a place where he can come and dwell. So the people needed to learn. God doesn't dwell in a temple. God dwells in us. This was what God was preparing to, to reveal to them. When Jesus came and said something like, look at this beautiful temple. Not one stone is going to be remaining on another. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Right? He had to prepare them to hear that and understand what he was, because God's people is his home. God's son is where he dwells and in, and in the body of his son. So be strong and courageous and don't worry about what your eyes see. Your eyes aren't going to, the results are going to be iffy, right? It's a small thing. Work for I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. This is what the people of God needed to hear. This is a thing, this is about the, the spirit. This is not about the physical structure of the temple. And what does he say through Zechariah? Chapter 4, Zechariah 4, flip over there. And again, this is in the 24th day of the 11th month, the second year of Darius. Same period of time, right? We're getting back to work. Uh, It's not really looking that good. Verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Do you think God wanted them to learn something here? (laughs) What was he trying to teach them? The people of the return from exile, the people of the new covenant, are people of the spirit. They're not a people of this physical temple. They're not a people of even the Torah. I'll read, I'll read a scripture uh, here in a second that illustrates that. But it's about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then, this is, this is what the people are waiting for. The Holy Spirit. And in fact, anything that's been glorious about those old temples... Even with all the gold and cedar and everything, what was actually glorious was the presence of God. Otherwise, it's just stuff, you know. Gold, I think that's just pavement in heaven, right? It's just materials. What's glorious and what has always been glorious about the people of God and what's always been unique about the people of God is the actual presence of God. The whole point of the temple is the Holy of Holies. The whole point of the priesthood is that this is a place where God comes to be with his people. And God's saying, you're coming back into the land. You have to understand this. The reason you're still my people is because of my presence. And what's going what's to keep you as my people in, on into the future, throughout the generations, is my spirit. Not might, not power, uh, and not tangible results. And so really, the same, (laughs) they're learning the same lesson that they had to learn in being sent into exile. You didn't listen to my prophets. You didn't listen to what they were saying. And because of that, you have to go into exile. They're really still not listening to the prophets. Right? They're coming back into the land and doing it not in a way that really aligns with what the prophet said. In those days, God was going to do a new thing. There was going to be a new creation. It was going to be a mighty act of the Spirit, and the covenant was going to be renewed. So, go to Jeremiah. So, he, his 70 years is prophesied in, in chapter 25. He tells them, um, you know, chapter 29 is where we get our famous verse. You know, I know the plans I have for you. You're going to go, and then I'm going to bring you back out. In that same vein, just a couple chapters later, chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his brother and his neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. They weren't living in the new covenant. They were living in the return. They were living 
at the end of the exile under the old covenant. And they were still looking for a somehow some sort of renewal of the old covenant. And God said, you know, that's the days are coming. That hasn't worked, right? I've done everything possible under the old covenant. And your fathers have broken it. That's passing away. There is a now a new covenant coming that doesn't scrap the old one, but it actually fulfills the old one, right? The word of God, the Torah, was, a, was, a, was part of the old covenant. Now he says, I'm going to come and put Torah in you. Not Torah outside of you, beating you down, making you adhere to it, but Torah within you, leading you, guiding you by the Spirit. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm not going to write it on tablets. I'm going to write it on your very heart, where you live, where you make decisions, where your, your drive for life is. That's where I'm going to write my law. Right? And so the problem with the exiles that have returned is that they still haven't really heard Jeremiah. <laughs> they still haven't really set their sights on the glory of this new covenant era. And they're still looking at the temple, they're still looking at the political situation, and they're still looking at um, you know, enacting Torah over all the people and trying to apply Torah to renew the world through Torah. But really what they're waiting for and what God hasn't done yet is himself come down to be the word made flesh and then to uh, be written on the hearts. All right. Yeah, so that's where we'll, that, that's where we'll, we'll leave it off tonight. They're coming back. It's not what they had hoped, not what they had thought. And God says, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and you need to, to, to stick with me during this time so that I can show you what's coming down the road. Um, but for now, you work not because of results and not by power, not by might, but you work because I'm with you by my spirit. This was the next step. You need to understand that it's, it's, it's not this land, it's not this place. All of that is pointing to something greater than itself. And it's me in my people filling the whole earth with my glory through them. Um, all right, so um, we'll keep going through the story, but then we'll sprinkle in the prophets um, as they speak to certain situations that are uh, happening at that point. All right, well, I thought we could close tonight by just uh, spending some time communing with God, but also just in prayer. You know, prayer plays a big role in these stories. You know, it was Daniel's prayer that really revealed um, what was coming down the, coming down the pipe toward the people. Uh, Nehemiah prays a prayer that he'd be allowed to go back and the God moves the heart of the king and gives him favor in the heart of the king. There's so much prayer that happens at this point. And um, so again, my heart is to, to learn what's in these books. But my heart is to really head into the fast with, with a sense of we need to cry out for the presence of God. Every year we remind ourselves 
in a time of fasting, that it's not by power, it's not by might, it's by the Spirit. And so if, if the only thing that happens is we read these books and we get hungry for the very presence of God, if we get desperate for him to build the house uh, so that we don't labor in vain, just to stir that up, that, that's my goal, right? And anything else that the Lord wants to sprinkle in along the way, that's a bonus. Um, but my goal is to really help us enter into the time of fasting as exiles who are coming out of exile and starting to, to build. What do we do? Well, we don't look at results. We don't look at um, physical power or strategies. We embrace the Holy Spirit. We allow the, 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 the word of God to be written on our hearts and we, we receive the Spirit and we, we allow God to establish uh, his presence among us and to make us into a house uh, for his name. Amen? Amen? So that's kind of our, you know, the, the month, sort of a pre-fast. Um, stir up a longing and a desire. When I read Ezra and Nehemiah, it's, I do long. It's like, oh, they're back, but man, it's just not, it's not yet. Still, still no, still no climax of, of uh, God's promises. It's still, it's still out there. And uh, I hope that can kind of be our heart going into the fast. We need God to move. We need God to fill us. We need to see transformation as individuals. We need his presence here guiding our church, telling us what to do. You know, the spirit speaks to the church and says, I'd like this. I don't, I'm not so fond, fond of that. And you need to get rid of this. And you need to repent of this. And I commend you for this. And the time of fasting is always a time for us to make ourselves available uh, to the spirit to speak to us in those ways. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's prepare our hearts for uh, communion. <clears throat> John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me I will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that our fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever.
Father, thank you that uh, you give us bread and you give us, uh, you give us true food and you give us true drink by allowing your body to be broken and your blood to be poured out. Lord, as we come to the table, um, we just have a heart of desperation that unless, unless you fill us with your life, Lord, we don't really live. We exist and we have this physical life, but we aren't living in the way that we were created to live. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to the table tonight, you would fill us with a sense of your presence, but also fill us with a sense of your purpose, Lord. That we have been born again in the image of Jesus. And that in living his life, his life in us and through us, Lord, we are truly living. We are living in an eternal sense. So Lord, come and fill us. Fill us as we come to the table, Lord. And Lord, we confess uh, any sin in our life and we earnestly repent of it. Lord, if there's anything in our hearts, search us, know us. Point it out, Lord, and grant us uh, repentance that leads to life. Not worldly sorrow that leads to, to more grief, but honest, true, earnest repentance of sin. And Lord, we also examine and invite you to examine us for uh, areas of discord among, uh, among the brethren, among your people. Lord, if, if we have walls up that prevent us from uh, really pursuing true and honest relationship with one another, I pray that you'd reveal that, Lord. And that as we come to the table, we would uh, receive the power and the promise of unity with you and unity with one another. Thank you, Jesus. We praise your holy name that uh, you have fulfilled all of your promises from Abraham onward, Lord. David, Moses. Lord, that you did not leave your people in that little plot of land with a, with a sad... Uh, little attempt at a temple. But Lord, you have given us such a glorious temple in your own flesh, God. Thank you, Jesus, that we live in this time where we can look back and we can see how you've fulfilled all of your promises. And Lord, I pray that, that those would be big and alive inside of us as we come to the table tonight. Lord, this is no small ritual that we do. Lord, we know that this is a means of grace uh, from you into our lives. And we, we open our hearts wide, Lord, to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.